and we get triggered and we notice, oh, oh, I'm freaking out and we have a feeling and then we run from that feeling. And because I always say, if you don't show up for what's up, it's gonna keep showing up. Even beneath this rage and even beneath this trauma and even beneath this anxiety, there's more and it's shame. Gabby Bernstein, welcome to Women of Impact, homie. Girl, I'm so happy to be with you and your oh. pink shirt. You look so cute as always. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. Your book is freaking amazing. And there's things that I've pulled from it that just knocked me for six. And where I want to start is don't call me crazy. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I want to start there is the amount of us women who've been in situations where we have an emotional reaction, whether it's from being triggered or we feel some sort of shame or embarrassment. And as a result, we get called crazy for it. And that can actually be a massive hindrance to our growth and our evolution and then improving ourselves. So I really want to start um, there and talk about triggers and how we perceive them um, from the outside and then how we actually work on them on the inside. Yeah. You're referencing one of the chapters in Happy Days, my new book. And yeah, that chapter is called Don't Call Me Crazy. And it's actually a really profound part of the book where I really introduce my experience with depression and anxiety and what activates that. But to start, I think I'm going to begin with what you just asked, which is really identifying our triggers. We all have these moments in time when we get super activated, but we don't know why often. And we get triggered and we notice, oh, oh, I'm freaking out and we have a feeling and then we run from that feeling. And the ways that we run from those feelings is workaholism or overeating or any form of addiction, rage, uh, negative self-talk. We do a lot of things over the trigger response, the feeling of the trigger. And that actually becomes the trigger response, how we react over that feeling. And in the beginning of this book, I just dive right in with noticing your triggers, noticing how they're affecting your life, and giving yourself the opportunity to take an inventory of all of the patterns in your conscious or subconscious that are showing up over and over again. Because I always say, if you don't show up for what's up, it's going to keep showing up. And that's, that's a huge message that's going to come through this instantly as you start this practice. So it's as simple as noticing what triggers you, noticing how it feels, and then noticing what you do in response to that feeling. Yeah, God, I love that girl so much. And um, it was very fascinating because I always like to be challenged and um, improve. And so when I think of triggers before, it was always, okay, why am I having this trigger? And that's where to start. But I actually love that you say in the book that isn't the way where to start. And it really is just to observe. So actually, like you just laid out the beautiful steps. Can you take me a little deeper? So when you're observing, it's very hard in that moment to pull yourself out and have the non-biased view of what is going on. How do you um, how do you start to take that observation without the judgment? Yeah. Well, all throughout the book, I reference um, a beautiful therapeutic practice that I've been trained in and called internal family systems, otherwise known as IFS. And I have a whole chapter on it. And then I have practices in the book that relate to it. And I really love the qualities. I want to really tap into what the qualities that we all have within ourselves. 
Because when we start to attune to and recognize and respect and honor these qualities, that's when we begin to change how we react to our patterns, our triggers, and all the negative behavior that we put out. And so in the book, the self energy is what I reference. And it's it's known in IFS as, as self. And in other spiritual programs or belief systems, it could be higher self or inner guidance system. And in this therapeutic practice, it's known as self with a capital S. And it's a quality that we all have. It is an energetic presence that we all have within us. That presence is curious and it's compassionate and it's courageous and it's calm and creative. And when we start to develop a connection to that part of who we are, that truth of who we are, that's when we can start to relate to our triggers with more compassion and courage and curiosity and calmness. And so the first question would be really looking at the trigger and noticing, oh, there I am again in that workaholism or whatever it is, and ask, just get curious. Ask it what it needs to reveal to you. Ask it if it needs a hug. You know, just start to get mm-hmm. curious and let, it, let that voice of, of the trigger speak back to you. It, sound, it might sound strange at first, but it's profound what will be revealed when you start to become curious about what those parts of yourself actually need. That's amazing. What if the voice coming back to you is mean and cruel? So the voices that we will internally hear are known as protector parts. And really what's happening is we have these parts of ourselves from childhood that are that are trauma with a big T, trauma with a small T. Big T trauma could be sexual violence or neglect or alcoholic parent. Small T trauma could be bullied or told you were stupid. And so we push down and exile those child parts of ourselves and build up all these protectors, protection mechanisms, you might call them coping mechanisms, to really anesthetize and numb out that suffering and never talk of it again. So the protectors are the workaholic, the addict, the controller, the people pleaser, all the ways that we deflect and push down that deeper impermissible feeling. And instead of noticing their back talk, like let's say a protector is being nasty to you to answer your question and speaking back to you and challenging you, the, the work here is just to continue to meet it with more compassion, with mm-hmm. more curiosity, and to really witness that these are all valuable parts of who we are all these different reactivities and everything that's there is valuable as long as it's not in its extreme role. So, so much of this book is about self-regulation and Mm -hmm. witnessing and really honoring everything internally, physically, in a somatic experience, as well as the inner dialogue protector parts that we have built up against the feelings of of not being safe. Yeah, there were some super freaking powerful moments. If you don't mind, we dig a little deeper into certain stories that you told that I was like, I really felt it. And so your entire history and everything you've done and just the amazing content you've created and the books and everything that you've ever done is very much guided with spirituality. And you haven't very often, you haven't spoken about medication. And then you find yourself in a situation 
where now you have to go on medication. And that mm. really hit me for multiple reasons because I think we hold our identity to how other people see us. We yeah. hold our identity to what we've done in the past. And that actually, in this situation, um, it was a great almost example to show how our identity can actually hold us back from progressing. And so can you actually take us through that and how you came yeah. to that conclusion? Back to the chapter. Don't call me crazy. All right. So I... I told uh, you I love the chapter, girl. <laughs> <laughs> so I I opened that chapter with a story of being in the back seat of my car with my four-month-old son and my husband driving. And we're driving to my in-law's house for Mother's Day. And I'm sitting in the back seat and I say to myself, I want to die. And I get to my in-law's house and I'm sitting at the dinner table and my sister-in-law is sitting with me and I just start crying. And I just say, I can't go on like this. And my mother-in-law comes over and she puts her hand on my shoulder and she says, oh, honey, everybody has new mom anxiety. And I looked at her and I was like, this is more than just new mom anxiety. And I carried on like that for four months in this suicidal ideation in extreme anxiety, extreme depression, and insomnia, literally not sleeping a night. And that was making me mad, mad, like mad in my mind, and very angry, exactly. But I was just trying everything that I knew. I was trying all the holistic remedies and the ashwagandha and the melatonin and anything that seemed like it was acceptable in this wellness space that I was in. And never would I contemplate accepting a diagnosis and let alone accepting any kind of medicated path. But then I hit a bottom and it was ironic that the bottom I hit had to do with my work, right? Like finally <laughs> something made me stop and, and ask deeper questions. But I, I, I had a, a talk in New York City and I went to my apartment and I didn't sleep the night before and I called the, produ the event producers the next day, and this is my first time in 16, in 20 years of being a speaker, that I canceled a talk. And I said, I just can't make it. I didn't sleep last night. That was, a, a, that was my bottom. For whatever reason, that was the moment where I was like, I can't move forward. I called my therapist. as I'd been doing every single morning, pretty much calling her and telling her about my lack of sleep the night before. And finally, she said, get Zach on the phone. That, that's my husband. Get Zach on the phone. And she pretty much staged an intervention. She was like, you need psychiatric support right now. You're having a biochemical condition. And that, that was the moment when I turned, turned it over to God, got my ass over to the psychiatrist. Within 10 minutes, she gave me a clear diagnosis. You have postpartum depression and anxiety. And she looked at me and she said, you've done a lot of personal growth work and a lot of trauma recovery and a lot of spiritual development. But now with the prescription I'm going to give you for this antidepressant, and it will help with your anxiety, I believe that you will be able to do far deeper work than you've ever been able to do before because you'll have a new baseline of safety. And that's what really gave me full body permission to just take advantage of this resource that God was giving me that came in the form of a prescription drug and a prescription drug that I otherwise would have been so placing such a stigma upon and shameful of was ultimately what not only saved my life but also 
gave me a greater sense of profound living than I'd ever known before because it gave me that baseline of safety to go far deeper in my therapeutic work. Because I was no longer in extreme terror and hypervigilance, I could settle in my nervous system and explore deeper parts of myself that really needed to be healed. And that's that's how a self-help book author and spiritual teacher was guided by God. I believe that God is in all of it, in the psychiatrist, in the medication, mm. and in the ashwagandha, and in the meditation. But it's it's all. When we're being guided and we're resisting that guidance, we block the miracles. And I'm just grateful that I hit enough of a bottom to really learn that there was another way out. And that way out was going to be through deep therapy, but also the support of a medication that would settle my system enough to do that deeper work. That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And do you think then part of that evolution was um, the perspective that you had on who you were and what you were doing? So instead of being, I won't take drugs, I am holistic, it's the reframing of I'm the person that wants to improve myself. Definitely, 100%. I think that throughout my life, I've been in a really devotional pursuit of freedom, inner freedom. And it hasn't always been easy for me to get to the next up-leveling or the next up-leveling because I'm stubborn and I, I've been at times very fixed in my ways. But there's been many moments that have been a cracking open that have allowed me to step up to the next level of where I need to be spiritually and emotionally and in my internal state. Getting sober at 25 and putting down the drugs was one one big leap into that next phase. Uh, remembering trauma at 36 and really experiencing the full body memory of a dissociated trauma from my childhood put me into this up-leveling of, okay, we got to go bigger. And the only way I was able to up level in these cri in these moments of crisis was because I was so devoted to feeling free, to being free in my energy system. And the same thing happened when I had the postpartum experience and went to that next level. If you own your own business, when an employee leaves your company, whether on good terms or bad, it can feel, I hate to say it, but it actually can feel personal, like you and you alone are the one to blame. And it actually may even trigger you to lock down your business, not open yourself up and not actually risk trying anyone else. Like you actually would your heart after a bad breakup and avoid looking for that new partner altogether. Well, let's face it, sometimes we can do that with highs as well. And trust me, guys, I've been there. I get the thought of bringing in a new stranger into your business actually fills your heart with more anxiety than it does love and joy. But when you post your jobs on LinkedIn, you can actually feel the confidence that you will find the right person for the right job fast because LinkedIn isn't actually just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion billion with a B professionals, which makes it the best place to hire because guys, it gives you access to professionals that you actually can't find anywhere else. And so LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive, which then makes hiring with confidence easy when you have that many quality candidates. And it's so easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidates within 24 hours. So post your jobs for free at linkedin.com slash 
Lisa. That's linkedin.com slash Lisa to post your job for utterly free. And of course, terms and conditions always apply. As an entrepreneur, one of the biggest challenges you will face is the negative voice in your head. You know who I'm talking about. That may be not so small part of you that loudly doubts your abilities to actually pull the things off and make a living from your passion project. But you've got to overcome that negative voice in your head, homie, because I'm telling you, you can do it especially if you use Shopify. Now, Shopify is an all-in-one global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From launching your business to hitting a million dollars, Shopify has got you completely covered. And with all the built-in Magic AI award-winning customer service and the internet's best converting checkout, you have everything you need to shut down the voice of doubt and make all your amazing business dreams a reality. That's exactly why, guys, I love Shopify. So if you want to start growing your business with more customers and sales, shut that negative voice down and prove her wrong that you can do it, Shopify is here for you. So go and sign up for just $1 a month with your trial period at shopify.com slash Lisa, all lowercase. Again, guys, you can go to shopify.com slash Lisa right now to grow your business, no matter where you are and what stage it's in. That's shopify.com slash Lisa. Wow, that's so powerful because I think that I was going to follow up the question. You already answered it. It's like, what is the difference between people that end up stuck in this vicious cycle, in this vicious loop that they can't get out compared to someone like you who you said you're stubborn. It is very difficult, but you're still able to level up. So you even called it like the crack point or something like that. It was like, I was going to say, how do you get to that point and push yourself? Mm -hmm. Because being on that cycle can also can feel very crippling. And then you feel like there's no way out. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Amma the Hugging Saint has this beautiful quote. When an eggshell is cracked from the outside, it's broken. But when it's cracked from the inside, it's reborn. So I believe that being willing to crack and brave enough to wonder what lives underneath the surface of that eggshell is what allows us to really go to the next level in our personal development and our, in our pursuit of freedom and happiness and peace. And so everyone has that available to them. Some people, particularly those suffering with biochemical conditions, it's, 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 it's much harder because they, they are literally in a neural loop that without some support they can't necessarily get out of. But mm-hmm. they have hope too because their ability to seek psychiatric support can be that step for them. And all of us get into these neural loops of repeated stories from our history that we get so hooked into that build up a belief about the life that we have, build up all these different forms of protection to push down those numb feelings that we don't want to feel ever again. And we just get into that cycle. And that cycle is starting to break for many more people now more than ever because we've all lived through this collective crisis. There's so much more Mm. uh, emphasis on mental health. There's almost like a greater freedom in being in dialogue about how you're feeling than ever before. In my circles, in our circles, where we have all these sort of emo friends and we're like really into personal growth, we could, you and I could call each other up and I'd be like, how are you? And I'd be like, I'm really fucked up right now, you know, and just Mm -hmm. tell the truth. But that's not normal for most people. Most people just don't say how they feel. But with this global pandemic that we've just lived, that we're living through, 
we're witnessing so many more people just acknowledging that they're suffering. And that's the door opener. The moment that you acknowledge your suffering, you open an invisible door to receive guidance. And hopefully, whoever needs that guidance can open that door and be guided to a book like mine or any other book that's serving them or a therapist or a friend or a podcast, whatever it might be. There's never been a better time than now for people to experience this type of awakening because we need it now more than ever. We need to feel safe in our body. We need to release the stories from our past. We need to know how to self-regulate our energy and our anxiety and our depression. We need to know when to seek greater counsel and support. And we need tools. Oh, and that's why I freaking love it so much is that it's giving the tools and the tips. And as I mentioned earlier, it's depending on where you are, this is my advice. And so it really does cover multiple different um, levels to meeting someone where they really are versus saying, okay, this is where you are. And I really love that. And it's so beautiful. Um, the one thing that as you were talking, I think about, you know, from the outside, things like drugs, alcohol, you know, seem as like an obvious vice that people go to. And you kind of know instinctually that, you know, it, if you're doing it more and more, that maybe it's become a problem. But you also talk about one thing that um, we as humans do that you've done many times is seek other relationships as the crutch. And I actually have a quote of yours about being alone. And then the, the fear of us being alone is sometimes too difficult. Um, and I, you, I pulled a quote, it says, I thought that a partner could fix my pain and make me whole. I turned my boyfriends into God. The fear of not having a boyfriend was so de debilitating that I spent years in relationships with people who weren't right for me simply to avoid being alone. Mm. Yeah. Talk to me a bit about that because I think it's so sadly common. And I mm. think that that's one of those things I don't think necessarily we as humans sometimes realize we're doing like we do with drugs and alcohol. I don't yeah. think we realize that as much with the heart. Yeah. Codependency and uh, anxious attachment style is often un overlooked because it's not life threatening. Mm. Oh, not always at times. I'm sure it can be. But it's not it's not as obviously life threatening as drug addiction and alcoholism but it's absolutely unmanageable and you become powerless over your drug of choice which in this case is a relationship so that is the definition of addiction when it's unmanageable and you're powerless this is the 12-step definition and so we we notice often when we get clean and sober off of drugs and alcohol we pick up a lot of other addictions and in my case I picked up work addiction and codependency and the codependency for me was something that was quite debilitating. And I understand now that my attachment style was an anxious attachment style, which means that growing up, I felt very anxious with my parents and I didn't know what I was going to get each day. Am I going to get a connection? Am I going to get no connection? So that creates a real anxious attachment style. And that individual as an adult will typically fawn and cling and try to really establish connection at all costs. And you know who you are, you know, you're the one that's like zero to 10 in the relationship, you know, you show up with your luggage at the first date, and you're like, I'm moving in. And in that place, we really, we really deny ourselves the ability to, to truly enjoy the connection of real, real relationships, because we're just looking for any form of security and safety. 
And so I go, I go into that as well. I mean, I go into all of it in the book. As you know, it's so crazy. I just, anyone that's read this book is like, I can't believe you packed it all in. <laughs> but I, I needed to because I needed the reader to be able to see this is why you've been running. And this is and help them recognize what they've been running from and how they've been running from it. Mm-hmm. And then give them the steps and the model for how to undo those patterns. Yes, you actually talk about running and how that um, we're we're trying to escape and it actually just prolongs the cycle of staying in that. Um, How do we identify that we're actually running? Because sometimes it feels like I'm playing it safe. Like this is the better thing to do to move away from what is making me anxious or overwhelmed. So what, how do you define the difference between running or getting yourself space and how do you process it so that you know um, that your actions are actually serving what you're trying to do? We are running from impermissible feelings and energetic disturbances from our childhood. And they often can be reactivated in moments of crisis and and feeling out of control or something goes wrong. So we can get, or big life changes. So we can get, we can reactivate those feelings of those traumas and those impermissible feelings of those childhood wounds can be reactivated during COVID. They can be reactivated when you feel out of control. They can be mm-hmm. reactivated when you feel like someone isn't doesn't like you. They can be reactivated by looking at social media and comparing yourself to people. And when they get reactivated, instead of facing the deeper wound of the feeling of being unlovable or inadequate, whatever may have happened as a child, we just build up these protection mechanisms to avoid ever having to face those child parts. And so the protectors are the ways that we run. We run with the Mm -hmm. addictive behaviors. We run with the work. We run with the people pleasing. We run with the, even just a physical symptom could be another way we run because often there's a psychosomatic effect of these impermissible feelings. If you don't feel the deep stuff, it could show up as a migraine. It could show up as gut issues. It could show up as uh, insomnia. And you and I have talked about this a lot. And so, and I, I'm very open in the book about all the gastrointestinal issues I had because of the impermissible feelings I was so afraid to reach into. And the miracle is that now on the other side of this, having undergone the deep healing that I needed to get to place of safety in my, in my own internal system, I have zero gastrointestinal issues. And I sleep through the night with no... CBD, no medication, no melatonin. I sleep 12 hours, 10 hours, not 12 hours, 10 hours a night. I wish I slept 12 hours sometimes. <laughs> and yeah. 10 is like 12 when you're 42. And um, <laughs> and it's, you know, it's just, it's just profound what can happen when you do this kind of healing work. It's so insane about how the body holds that type of um trauma and stress and yeah I mean it's like you said we've both been through it and we've spoken so endlessly about it and um you've just pinpointed it so much about how it is so true and I never would have believed it unless I had gone through it and it that's why I think sharing your story is so powerful because the amount of people that I've heard have had health issues gut issues and they're taking a pill um because the doctor's like oh it is the body versus it is um, stress and history that your body is holding. Yeah, and I think it's important to recognize the medical world in this conversation because it's not that you're not having these physical symptoms or diagnosed experiences. It's that you, and yes, at times you need medical intervention 100%. I mean, I just was very open about that in my own experience. Mm-hmm. But 
so this is all true, but the bigger message is that you can't just take the pill and not address the psychosomatic condition, not address mm -hmm. the the underlying root cause of that psychosomatic condition. So in my opinion, and, and I'm really speaking on behalf of the work of Dr. John Sarno and many other spiritual teachers and doctors that believe in the practice of really addressing the core wounds of rage and shame and impermissible feelings that we just push down as a way of addressing the body as well. But I do believe it's very valuable to use both, right? I've in my in my life I've I've had to rely on PPIs, but that but the dieting and the medication was never going it wasn't dieting, but like healthy diet and the medication was never going to be enough. I had to change my energy. I had to change the sense I had to restore a sense of safety in my body. Oh yeah, that's so well. Oh my god, that's so well put. And just to, I want clarity as well. When I said they gave me a pill, it was like, oh, here's an antibiotic, and your gut will be fine. That's right, the kind right, of pills that right. they were trying to yeah, give me. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until I started to realize that my lifestyle and how I was living that then allowed me to make the change. And then, like you said, it really did have an effect on how how often I was triggered, my moods, my emotions, my hormones, like it had this massive knock-on effect. I was thinking it was mostly the gut versus it was mostly the mind. And that was the most powerful shift I made in changing my health completely. Yeah, and I saw myself in you when we first met because I saw, you know, the physical suffering and I heard you speak and speak openly about it. And I was in the place of still suffering at the time too, physically. And I shared a lot of what I did from a medical standpoint, but what I shared most was I had to heal the stress and the anxiety and the, really the root cause of it. Not just mm -hmm. meditate for hours, but meditate for hours and or meditate for minutes or whatever and do the deep therapy to get to the root of it. Yeah, um, actually, there's something you mentioned in the book that I was like, oh my God, like the amount of us that do this is so common. And I love that you just call it out. It's like you addressed the shame that you had of your shame. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. talk to me about that because it's so freaking true, girl. We all yeah, do it. Yeah, well, shame is the most, the most impermissible experience, is the most impermissible feeling. It's so buried, so deep. I didn't even, I write about how I didn't even know I had shame until I was like 37. I was like, I don't have shame. Are you kidding me? I was living, running from shame for my entire life. And it is the shame of having shame. There's sort of this deeper rooted feeling of, I can never face into that because it's so terrifying. I believe that shame is the most shut down and most impermissible especially when the shame comes from trauma or sexual abuse or someone, especially when you're a child, because what it says, the shame is really saying, this didn't happen to me. This is something that I did to make it happen. And even though that is completely untrue, it is what the kid takes on. It's what the child takes on. The belief system Can you system explain that, why? Well, when we experience traumatic events in our childhood, particularly if it's from a caregiver or a teacher or somebody that, or a parent, or, you know, there's, there's this belief system that, not that that is wrong, but that I am wrong. We take on the burden of the other. We don't have the adult processed self to really show up and say, no, this is not me. 
this is somebody else, we take on the shame of that other person and the experience. We also don't have the methods and mechanisms for processing that trauma in our body or even in our storyline. And we have to really honor our inner child and all of our inner children and give so much respect and love because when they became activated as, ch as children, whether it was small T trauma or big T trauma, they didn't think they had anywhere to go. And so they just stuffed it down and moved forward and then built up all these protection mechanisms for stuffing it down more. So we have to really take a moment, even just right now in this moment, send those inner children just so much compassion and so much love and, and respect and just calmness and say, I, I'm proud of you for getting to where you are and I want to do more for you. Thank you for explaining that. That was, um, it's hard to really let things like that sink in and to think that, you know, young kids right now, how do we help them? Because everything we're talking about is as an adult looking back. And mm. so there's just that heartbreak in me that's like, how do we help the children now so they don't have to do the um, the, the unwinding? That's kind yeah. of actually where you've caught me. Well, like I have a three-year-old, so I can speak to that with a lot, of, a lot of truth. But in the book, I write about how there's a chapter called Reparenting Yourself. And I write about how at the beginning of the pandemic, I was deep in with the work of Dan Siegel, who is a profound child psych psychologist and just really, really blows my mind with the techniques and methods for really soothing children and honoring them and helping them feel seen and secure. Everything that so many of us didn't get when we were children. <laughs> and I started thinking about it and I was like, these methods are really working with Oliver. What if I started to apply them to myself? What if I started to use these practices in my own life, focusing on seeing myself, seeing my child parts, soothing those child parts, and helping to create a secure environment for those child parts, making them feel safe? And how could I do that? I can meditate. I can eat healthy food. I can go to my therapy. I can talk and write and journal with these parts. And so noticing the ways that I could be as respectful to my own inner children as I am to my son was really profound for me. And how can we help our kids right now? First, do the work on yourself. Because all the shit that we dealt with as children and that we've been running from, we're just projecting right back onto our own children. And so the more we do the put that oxygen mask on first and do our own work, the more ease we will have showing up for our children. And my, my son's in a perfect age to be my best guru ever because he is tantruming all the time and kicking and you know light, wanting to test our limits all the time. Mm -hmm. And the only response I have is steadiness and calmness and co-regulation of just letting him know that my presence is enough to bring him back to a place of feeling safe. And then doing no drama discipline. You know, it's like picking him up, taking him out of the room and just gently saying, I'm not going to allow you to do that. What could you do instead? And doing it again and again and again and again until he gets it because no amount of yelling is ever going to help a child change. And uh, that's a whole other podcast that we could do. 
<laughs> I know. I was going to say that's also another book you could write, girl. It's Just definitely like... coming, girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, buddy. It's that's so powerful. Oh my god. Um, okay, so once you've processed then your past and your history, and then the shame, how did you start to identify that you were shaming your shame, and that's how you just kept being on this wheel of um, the you know the the spinning wheel, the hamster wheel. Well, by recognizing my shame, I recognized my shame. I was leading a talk and with two other women, and it was about different modalities for healing these kinds of wounds. And I was sitting in on the workshop that one of the teachers was, the other teachers was was leading. So I was in the audience, and we were doing a shame workshop. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'll just like be a good teacher and work with somebody in the classroom. <laughs> Little did I know it was going to be for me. I'm sitting there and I'm like 37 years old and I'm realizing for the first time that I have so much shame, so much unresolved shame. I believe that shame work is the most profound and safe to be done with therapeutic support. Mm-hmm. At first, there are there are plenty of practices in the book about our shame response and the way that we react to shame. And so the point is really just to raise the awareness and then to do the deeper work on shame, I believe really requires some handholding because it's so terrifying to our entire nervous system that if you jumped into it too fast, you could go into a real panic. And so you want to be really gentle in that connection to your shame. Yeah, you talk about honoring your feelings a lot and kind of going back to something that we were talking about earlier is how very often I think when um, – Something makes us uncomfortable, we want to run from it. We want to move away from it. And it's the idea that um, you actually need to be okay with getting uncomfortable. And it is the getting getting comfortable with being uncomfortable is exactly what allows you to improve and get better. Um, and I'm always thinking, though, that in the moment, it just doesn't feel right, right? It doesn't feel comfortable. And so it's like, why the hell am I doing this? It would be much easier for me to walk away and turn my back to it. And so even though I know, you know, I've been watching the podcast and, you know, been hearing, you know, people talk, it's like, it doesn't feel good. So I'm I'm going to m- turn around. I'm always trying to think about what that thing is that allows people to feel the the service that it would do to them by staying. Well, there's a truth that not everybody's ready right away. Mm-hmm. I believe that our nervous system and our internal guidance system is always aware of what we are capable of feeling in that moment in time. I had been working for over a decade as a spiritual teacher. I'd written over six or seven self-help books. I'd been on Oprah. I'd had a lot of experiences in my life of being a a profoundly helpful person in the world. But before that age of 36, I didn't even know what it was I was running from. I didn't even know, I didn't have any conscious awareness of these experiences from my childhood. I was just running, running, running. So we can live life and we can coexist with these feelings for as long as we need to until we become safe enough to reveal the truth. And I actually asked my therapist, I said, why did I remember this now? And she said, because you've done so much work to get to a place where you were safe enough to remember. And so if somebody may not need to recall a dissociated memory, but they they may not be ready to face into some of these experiences until 
the right moment. And that's why this book is so gentle in the way that I guide the reader because I say over and over, this might activate you and I want you to come back to it in a year, whatever it is. I don't want you to go there right now because it's going to be too much for you. And so you can experience this book from wherever you are in your, in your desire to feel free. And that's really all that's required of the reader is a desire to feel free. Did you feel it then in that moment where you sat with that person at that event or was it completely unexpected but because you had done all the work it was the right moment um, and the right questions and the right person? Well it was a stranger I don't even remember who it was I don't remember the exercise but I do remember that that was the moment in time where I had an aha moment of oh even beneath this rage and even beneath this trauma and even beneath this anxiety, there's more and it's shame. Mm. Rage is such a powerful emotion. How do you get past that to see anything beyond it? In the book, I have a practice called Rage on the Page. It's a, a, it's a gift of a practice that I learned through a girlfriend named Nicole Sachs who also studied with, she studied with the, the, the doctor I mentioned earlier, Dr. John Sarno, all about these, those, those psychosomatic conditions. And we didn't, I did an interview on her podcast and I was like, Nicole, I'm having all this TMJ. And she said, okay, we'll do this practice. I call it journal speak. And write for 20 minutes about all the things that are up for you, all the anger, rage, whatever needs to come out, and then meditate for 20 minutes. And then in true Gabby style, I just made it my own. So I, I added binaural music, which is music that stimulates both sides of the brain to really help you unlock this greater window of tolerance for the what old, type of music is it? Sorry, can you explain that it's again? It's bilateral brain stimulation. It's called bi EMDR music or binaural music. EMDR, which I write about in the book, is also known as eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And so, the EMDR part is it's a it's a whole other therapeutic practice. But there's ways to stimulate both sides of your brain while you're thinking about a trigger or an emotional disturbance. And that helps open up the brain's window of tolerance to pro- reprocess the experience, whether it be an old experience, a new experience, or a new experience that's mirroring an old experience. Mm. So that's how it works with uh, buzzers in either hand or either ear or even this music that I'm referencing, which is, bi- which it, it just sort of makes a tone in one ear and a tone in the other ear. And that back and forth stimulation really helps you reprocess the emotional disturbance. So... What I did was I took this process of journaling for 20 minutes and meditating for 20 minutes, and I added the binaural music so that while I was journaling my rage onto the page, I was also reprocessing it with the bilateral brain stimulation. Hmm. And then I would relax and hold my heart and rest easy in a 20-minute meditation, continuing to let that out and to let it reprocess. And this is a practice that I would highly recommend for people who don't necessarily feel safe enough yet to really face into the impermissible rage or even shame, but just want to just let some of it out, let off some steam. You'll see profound effects of this. And 
when I heard the rage on the page, A, I just love the name. It needs to be its own song and theme tune. Um, but there's something really powerful about it. Um, and I was wondering if there are, I'm, I'm such a like, I want tips, right? So it's like, okay, I've got rage on the page. Now, how do I approach it? Because part of me sometimes when I'm feeling embarrassed or the shame and I have this internal dialogue, I often will write rage about myself. Is there any guidance there? Because I even, I've heard you say, you know, when you're saying to yourself, oh my God, I'm so stupid or, um, you know, you're such an idiot or things like that, is that... Um, I can see certain rages becoming that, but I don't actually know if that's helpful or not. It is because if you just give voice to whatever the rage needs to say and you write for a full 20 minutes, love will enter in. And then even if it doesn't enter in that 20 minutes, then the next 20 minutes you meditate and love will enter in. So if you go for it and you do a full 40 minute practice, you're clearing the space to listen to that voice of love within yourself, that voice of self with a capital S. Compassion, mm -hmm. kindness, curiosity, creativity, courage. It'll come through. Yeah, but beautiful. it is important, I like and I say this in the book, that not everybody's ready for rage on the page because that too can be overly activating. So maybe you just want to journal instead about your instead of journaling about your rage and self-hatred, maybe instead you would be journaling about why you're so mad at somebody else or just being being a little bit disturbed about something, just focusing on something a little less triggering. Uh, mm. You have to really check in with yourself and see if this is enough. If it's too much for you, come back to it in a year. <laughs> yeah, because that's what I was going to say is that, you know, sometimes um, – depending on what you do when you're at that height of emotion can either fuel it or it can dissipate it. And so I was wondering if the rage on the page becomes like a fueling of the anger. It's kind of like, you know, when you go to your friend and you're just like, you're really mad. And so you're just like telling them how mad you are mm. and they actually fuel it. Um, do you find that because that you're can writing happen. it? That can happen. Well, here's the deal. The intention is to get it out. The intention is to get mm -hmm. it out, and the intention is to really then give yourself this reprocessing meditation. But if you feel that it's too much, it can be reactivating. And I really encourage the reader all throughout the book to just keep checking in with their internal condition. Am I ready for this or am I not ready for this? Does this feel too activating? Okay, I'm going to go back to that other method that she gave me, the heart hold, and I'm going to hold my heart in my stomach and just breathe. So. There's so much in there that can help the reader wherever they are. And I, ha I have to trust the reader to really take my guidance and give themselves full permission to not do everything. Yeah. So having done the work and having just really beautifully, like you've said many times, has guided people through it, like you're my friend. I mean, you are my mate. But like, you know, you're really holding my hand through it. And there's... Um, the moments that would be triggering, that would be um, maybe shameful, that would make me think something, you definitely put it in a position that makes me feel like it's okay. And that is so beautiful because you've said it multiple times, it, it makes you feel safe. And reading the book really made me feel safe in everything that you're making me do, not making me do, but you know what I mean? Like guiding me through and then feeling like there's this comfort at the end. But there's never ever an end, right? How do you process that in thinking about it? Because 
self-growth, um, evolution. I think that, you know, I, I want to keep growing and evolve till the day that I die. And so I used to think once I'd done the work, oh, I'm good, I'm over it now, and now I can move on. But I noticed that used to hold me back. And now I shift into this isn't a one and done, it's a process. So even reading your book, I think of it as like a yearly ritual, if even, of like, I'm going to pick it back up again, and I need to do it all over again. Lisa, scream that on the rooftops, because that's exactly what my hope is for this reader. This is a book that's decades of personal growth in one book. So the goal is that you read it, and I would say read it without doing the exercises the first time around, if you feel called. Take it in, then go back and read it again, and start to pick up the exercises and practices that feel like they're right for you in this moment. And then in six months or a year, do it again. Because it's meant to show you what you're intuitively guided to in this moment. Mm. If you tried to do all these practices at once, it might just feel very overwhelming. Yeah, and you know, our habits evolve, our um, our lifestyles evolve. And so even just thinking about, okay, you know, I've I'm reestablished new habits in putting this book as part of your yearly habit. Because I'm always, what am I doing every day to move myself towards the person I want to be? What am I doing every month? And then bigger scale, what am I doing every year? Mm. And it really is the like the rinse and the repeat. And one of my favorite movies of all time was The Karate Kid because of like the wax on and the wax off. And it's like your book really becomes this whole like wax on, wax off thing that allows me to keep showing up every day. I love that. That's so gorgeous. Thank you. Where do you hope this ends up taking people from the starting point to the end point? Or is there even a hope? Oh, or yeah, is there's it a lot everyone's of hope. Ju- there's a lot of hope. My hope is that this book helps people feel like they're not alone, recognizing their struggles in mind, and really gives them the path and the sense of inner safety, knowing that there is a way out. Because facing my deeper wounds was most terrifying because I wasn't sure I was gonna get out. And so by sharing my story of how I got out, how I came back to freedom and inner peace, and how I can live here today and still keep shining the crystal and still keep going further, that helps the reader see that there is hope, that there is light on the other side. How do you hold on to that in your darkest moments? How do I hold on to that in my darkest moments? I've had some moments where it's been hard to believe and hard to hold on to, but the way that I've been able to hold on to that hope is through my spiritual faith, to know that I've been guided every single step of the way, to know that spirit is in everything. And that unshakable faith is what got me here. Well, girl, I'm so thankful for your unshakable faith because of that you wrote this book and are helping so many people. Where can people find you? Where can people find the book? And you've got like an event that's going on. You've got so many amazing things. Where can people follow you so that they know exactly what you're up to? My book can be found at DearGabby.com or at any place you get your books. You can also find me on my own podcast, Dear Gabby, which is my show Mondays. It comes out every Monday. And I'm also at Gabby Bernstein on Instagram. And I just want to say to you, Lisa, as we close out, that I love you, I admire you, and I'm witnessing you right now in an energy of up-leveling, whether you realize it or not. 
that is I'm, I'm almost can see people like a hologram these days and I can just see such beautiful grace and presence coming out of your system and you're just you're just magnificent I love you Oh, thank you, Homer. I love you too. And I'm so freaking honored to have you on and read your book and all the goodness you're putting out in the world. So guys, guys, please go check out her book. Go check out her website. Everything this woman's doing, it comes purely, purely from the heart. And it's so freaking impactful on my life, just as my friend, let alone her book. So honestly, guys, go check it out. If you're not following me, follow me at Lisa Billu. And if you're not subscribed to the channel, please subscribe. And until next time, guys, be the hero of your own life. Peace out.